Hey, good evening everyone. Welcome to evening broadcast, evening Dhamma. Today we're looking at the Madhu Pindika Sutta, Madhimanikaya 18, if you're interested. So in this talk, um, there's a lot to unpack, I think. It's not terribly complicated, but it's dense and difficult in some ways. I think it's not so difficult once it's explained, but it's interesting in that it uh, it has layers, as we'll see. So the first layer... Um, involves the Buddha meeting this uh, Sakyan who would be a relative of the Buddha Dandapani Dandapani just means someone who carries a walking stick whether that was actually his name or apparently it's what people called him because from even a young age he carried around a golden walking stick he was a sort of a stuck up fellow Commentary says he sided with Devadatta. So we've been studying Devadatta recently. You know the what if you can judge someone by the character of the people, of the friends they keep, then you have an understanding from that. Devadatta was a nasty individual. So this guy Dandabani comes up to the Buddha and I guess in a fairly rude manner asks him what the Buddha claims. What does the Buddha claim? What do you what are you pushing basically? Kimwadi Samano Kinkai. What do you what do you propound? What do you what do you teach? What do you say is true? In the time of the Buddha, there were many different teachers. All they all had different views. So he comes to the Buddha, asks him, and the Buddha, in his natural manner, responds not just to the question, but to the problem that this man seems to have sort of rude and arrogant manner and he says I teach in such a way that one doesn't uh, one doesn't quarrel with anyone not gods, not men humans nobody in this world that's the first part of what he says so it's not really much to do with our with our discourse, but again, something to come back to. This theme does come up. It's it's not a deep theme of the Buddha's teaching, but the idea of not quarreling is actually a feature of uh, an enlight of enlightenment. Right? It's one way of thinking about the state of being enlightened, that all your quarrels end. You stop fighting with others. You stop seeking other people's approval. 
you stop worrying and being afraid of others what do other people think of me you stop comparing yourself to others think of all the conflict friction we have with others it's not just fighting there's so much look at the world today and you just shake your head and think what we could accomplish just the human beings on earth what we could accomplish if only we could get along right it's wishful thinking there's so many reasons why we don't get along mainly our greed and our delusion that lead us to fight quarrel jealous greedy arrogant conceited opinionated religious lots of conflict in the world and it it's tearing us apart so it's a it's a um, message for us as humans certainly a message for us as Buddhists to not encourage or instigate quarreling not to try and fight with people or try to fix them or banish them from our world destroy them that's not the way out of suffering Buddhism is the way to end quarreling but then he says end the way and this is where we get into what really I think confuses the guy he says in such a way that perceptions no more underlie no more lie dormant is probably a better translation in that Brahmin who abides detached from sensual pleasures without perplexity without worry without craving for any kind of existence in such a way that perceptions no more lie dormant you see this is the, this is the first layer and this is the most difficult to understand so this is going to be explained let's not worry about it too much but we can get a sense of what is he actually saying he's saying that um, for someone who abides detached from defilements really there's something that uh, no more lies no more has potential is basically what this phrase means no more has the potential for arising certain perceptions Sanya is the word he uses The word sanya is interesting And in this sense it's kind of confusing And it's confusing to this guy who uh, Shakes his head, wags his tongue And raises his eyebrows Until his forehead is puckered in three lines I don't know how you do that <laughs> It's a, quite an image And he departed leaning on his stick But perceptions are, in some ways, um, how you see something. Or it's not even quite a judgment yet, really. Though it's, uh, it's a cause for judgment. It's how you conceive of something. Do you see someone as a threat, an enemy? And do you see someone as a friend, a loved one, a lover? Do you see food as delicious or so on? This is what gives rise to reactions. 
And this is how mindfulness works, right? When we uh, see something and we remind ourselves seeing, we're creating a sanya, a perception. It's called tira sanya. It's a very firm perception, firmly based on reality. Tira means firm. Tira sanya is the proximate cause of mindfulness in the texts. And so it's quite clear this is a sort of a sanya that you create gives rise to the reaction which is mindfulness so this is what he's talking about he's talking about certain perceptions not all perceptions although um, that, that does come into play here a little bit the idea of no perception which of course has to do with Nibbana but we won't go there yet so this guy gets all perplexed and makes a funny face and walks away. And the Buddha goes back to the monastery, to Nigrodharama, which uh, I guess Nigrodharama is... Who made Nigrodharama? I think the Buddha's, the Buddha's uh, father made Nigrodharama, I can't remember. And he sits down, and the, the bhikkhus all come and assemble, like we're assembled tonight, but only the Buddha and all the monks. And the Buddha gave it. The Buddhists gave a, a teaching. He actually told them what what had uh, gone on between him and this man. And if you're confused and and not really sure of exactly what's the the the, the import of what the Buddha said, if you read this or even listen to me in my sh brief explanation, and it's still not clear. You're not alone, because a certain bhikkhu asks the Blessed One, but how is it that one, how is it that the Blessed One uh, claims that in his teaching in such a way that he does not quarrel with anyone, angels, maras, brahmas, gods, other, other religious teachers, doesn't quarrel with any of these people, princes and people and how is it that perceptions no more underlie the blessed one no more lie dormant in the blessed one right if you just take it as per perceptions not lying dormant it seems very confusing it's not clear exactly what he means and the Buddha explains it and this is our second layer the Buddha's explanation it's not the final explanation And you got to wonder here, the Buddha, I, I think the commentary is probably going to say something like the Buddha wanted to uh, allow for a third explanation. But um, I think there's also sometimes um, an intention to help people look beyond uh, conventional knowledge. I mean, remember, the Buddha's teaching is not about views or beliefs. It's not about taking an intellectual... Um, intellectual information it's about seeing the world in a certain way it's not so much about what views we hold but in how we look at the, how we view the world so you don't have to think about the Buddha's teaching and think about the path and the goal and all these things but when we even talk about if you look at the goal like Nibbana the reason for even talking about it is to set your mind in a certain way 
and to think about the world in a certain way in terms of peace in terms of freedom from suffering to be clear that uh, what we're talking about is something that's quite beyond a, a state of mind right? like a, an experience that's going to fade away what we're talking about is something more profound where one uproots something here that the Buddha is talking about some certain perceptions that are have this this sort of uh, latency in us right like a person who is racist they might not even want to be racist but they find themselves being racist right or a person who is sexist or ageist or whatever of course for Buddhists who don't want to cling to sensual pleasures but still find them clinging to them these things lie in, inside of us they have the potential how do you get rid of them? so he explains he says so you take if you think about the source by which the source by which and here's a word that Bhikkhu Bodhi tries to explain I'm not convinced by his explanation those things I would put it those things by which um, there there one forms perceptions because of or based on proliferation okay so there's the source and then there's something called proliferation which we don't really have a good word in English besides that but it's where you make something make more or different of something than it actually is usually more uh, like when you see something you wouldn't think of it as hearing but when you see something you might think of it as beautiful or ugly or scary but it's none of those things it's only seeing and nonetheless this thing, its cause, proliferation, and because of the proliferation, there arises one forms, a person forms perceptions. That's how I would translate this, right? It's not that hard to understand. You have to unpack it a little bit, and it may very well be that if you just hear it being said and not explained as I am, it might be hard to to catch this isn't even the final explanation it gets more detailed so we're doing we're going to do okay in the end i think beset they beset a person right these these uh, sanya these perceptions so he says in regards to this source that gives rise to all of this that rely that causes one to judge it and well to to think more of it than it actually is and as a result judge it if in regards to that thing the source nothing is found to delight in welcome the word welcome hold on to what is this word welcome to to welcome well, to take in, you know, to to hold on to, to grasp, to cling to. This is the end of the underlying 
and there we use the word underlying the the, the latency right this not latency this uh, latent tendency potential is probably the best way to understand these things the potential for lust the potential for aversion the potential for views the potential for doubt the potential for conceit the potential for desire for becoming the potential for ignorance it's the end this is the end of resorting to weapons knives swords sticks quarrels brawls disputes recrimination malicious words and false speech here these evil unwholesome states cease without remainder that's his, his explanation he says this and then he gets up and goes into his kuti it's almost as though he didn't give them a chance to uh, to ask him to explain in detail what was his reasoning we don't really know the commentary I think says he's going to give a chance for a third explanation a third layer here because he actually wants to show off or allow the monks to appreciate Mahakajayana Mahakajayana was the Buddhist uh, the Agasavaka in regards to explaining he was able to explain uh, what was taught in brief in detail I think was his greatness so this is an example of where the Buddha would teach something in brief Mahakachayana had a great ability almost equal to the Buddha of explaining something in detail so they're going to go ask Mahakachayana to explain but first let's unpack what the Buddha is talking about here before Mahakachayana unpacks it further let's just try and understand what the Buddha is saying so again, we're talking about this source, this object And he's saying if you don't cling to it, if you don't grasp at it Again, this is exactly what we're dealing with in meditation Our experiences of seeing, hearing, smell That's what Kachayana is going to go into uh, When we don't uh, when, when we don't react to them Right? When seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. The, the bold claim here, I mean, it's not just saying, hey, then you won't react to it. It's saying that all of the evil in the world, really, is what he's saying. He brings up sticks and stones and quarrels and brawls and disputes, lies. He said people wouldn't lie. If we didn't cling to seeing and hearing and smelling and feeling and think, tasting and thinking, is it that simple? It's a very bold claim. I think it's something we, we, we have to take quite, we have to be clear about. That Buddhism really does claim to be the answer to all of the world's problems. What it claims is that there's a connection between the micro and the macro. There's a connection between how we live our lives and how we experience the world. Hmm? A connection between politics and international relations, even the weather. Even the universe, there's a connection between existence, the life, the universe, and everything. 
to these ordinary momentary experiences. It's not disconnected. These are the building blocks for all of that. And so most of it is innocuous. I mean, the, the, f the framework is pretty innocent. Seeing is, is, and so on. When it transforms into walking and talking and driving and working, all of this is, seems quite innocent, right? The world could be a very innocent place. It couldn't, but uh, it seems like it could. And it seems quite innocent, in fact. When you think about walking and talking, you don't think of evil, right? Boy, that person was walking quite evilly today. You don't think like that. Maybe talking, perhaps, but or driving sometimes. But ordinary driving isn't evil and it isn't good. It's just driving. Eating. I don't think of eating as evil. Boy, that person has a very evil way of eating. Attacking the food. Not really. But we know anything about Buddhism, we know that's, that's misleading. And that in fact in all of this, there is this asava, this seeping out, this poison. The Buddha talks about this poison in the mind. It's poison in everything we do. We do eat with evil in our hearts. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as, as liking the food. We don't, we don't think that's evil, right? I mean, as Buddhists, we get the point that in some way it is evil. In which way? In that, well, it, it creates stress for us, first of all as we want and we get partial to certain foods and stressed when we don't get the right food but it's worse than that, right? what we'll do to get that food look at what we do in this world to get food look at how, how we raise cattle I just released a new study that says that cows are responsible for a huge increase in maybe responsible or seem to be responsible for a huge increase in methane emissions, which is a greenhouse gas um, and probably really um, contributing to global warming but our need for meat, our need for sugar, salt, spice our need for good food, expensive food Socrates, way back then, he, he pointed it out, he said or Plato said that if you know we could we could create a republic if we just ate nuts and berries and grains simple food anyway i may be getting off track i won't go into that it's an interesting talk i've talked about it before um but we'll cut that off the point being that uh, our want, our everything that we do is tainted by this. Our want, our aversion, our, our worry, our fear, our doubt, our arrogance, our conceit, all these things. And that takes its toll. We don't notice it. Even though we know that that's a part of our lives, we think of it as more like an epiphenomenon. Yeah, it happens, but, you know, it somehow disappears into into space just like greenhouse gas, like the methane into the atmosphere. The problem is that like the methane, it doesn't go away, it builds up. 
methane in the atmosphere is a good analogy and it's a good indicator more methane in the atmosphere is a sign of more greed in the mind in the minds global warming isn't disconnected from our ordinary everyday experiences that's the sort of the profundity of this and how we can claim that meditation is so important so with such if one is mindful not only <coughs> excuse me not only do these underlying um, ways of looking at things so there's seven of them they're the anusaya uh, just ways of looking but underlying bad things really lust aversion lust is not the yeah lust aversion views doubt conceit desire for becoming wanting to be this and that and ignorance those are the anusaya they're a standard set of bad things basically all bad things okay so that's the buddha's explanation when you don't cling to the source of your your of your papancha of your making more out of things when you don't cling to it you don't make more out of it that's basically what he's saying Although Mahakachayana says in more detail. So the Buddha goes into his kuti. The monks are left there kind of dissatisfied or, you know, realizing how dumb they are. <laughs> and how, how, how far they are from being a Buddha to understand what the Buddha is actually trying to say. You know, it sounds like the Buddha is saying something wise, but they just realize how, they're, how dull their minds are. So what do they do? Of course, they go to see Mahakachayana, or Kachana, as it's said. His name is pronounced is spelled differently in different places. So they they tell him they go and they see him and they tell Mahakachayana um, what the Buddha said. And he says, and and they say, hey, can, can you explain it to us? And he looks at them. And you can imagine this senior monk looking down at these junior monks. And he says, friends, it is, it is as though a man needing heartwood, heartwood is the strong wood in the center, the tree seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, thought the heartwood should be sought for among the branches and leaves of a great tree standing possessed of heartwood after he had passed over the root and the trunk. So in, in, in the jungles, there's trees that have very strong center wood. Um, and, and most of the wood in the trunk can be quite hard. And the roots will have very hard wood as well. But the branches will not be hard. So even the termites can eat the branches of a teak tree. They can still eat through the branches. They can't eat through the, uh, the hard wood. Iron. It's like iron. And he says, it's as though you're like that person coming coming to find me and ask me to explain something when the Buddha's right over there. You're here in the presence of the Buddha. Why didn't you why didn't you ask him to expound it? 
So we don't know whether they actually had an opportunity. It doesn't say. It seems to suggest that the Buddha didn't really give them an opportunity. But it may very well have been that they just sat there and scratched their heads while the Buddha waited for them to ask about it. Don't know. But it seems more likely that he wanted Mahakajayana to expound it, to explain it. But they agree, yes, we, we, uh, that was the time we should have asked the Blessed One. So they very well may have missed their chance while they were sitting there trying to pretend that they weren't as dumb, didn't feel as dumb as they felt. And they say, so we should have asked him, but Mahakachayana is praised by the Buddha and esteemed by his wise companions. He is capable of expounding the detailed meaning. Please let the Mahaka, the Venerable Mahakachayana expound it if it's not too much trouble. All right, then listen up. He says, he says, when the Buddha said that regarding the source, one doesn't, when one doesn't delight and hold on to it, then all the bad stuff goes away, he meant, I understand him to mean, and here's where he explains it in quite detail. And this is, I think this layer is, this whole suit is quite, as you can hopefully tell, quite important for us, useful for us. Help us to look at the world in, in a more clear manner. Dependent on the eye and forms. So by the eye, it doesn't actually mean the, the it doesn't exactly mean this thing here. The eye is that physical, that aspect of the physical that receives light. So it involves this, it probably, you could say it involves the uh, optical nerve, and it probably involves part of the brain as well. But that part of us physically that receives light. And forms means light. Rupa. Rupa means form, form forms. Uh, but in this case, it means specifically things that are seen by light, right? So, so Socrates talks in the same sort of manner, or Plato, I guess, um, you know, dealing with form. When they talked about things that you see, they're talking about things that have shape. The extent of a physical object is what you see. Anyway, it, it means light, really. Because of those two things, there arises... A third thing, if the eye is healthy and there is light, there will arise, or may arise, eye consciousness. Eye consciousness can only arise based on these other two things. You can't have eye consciousness outside of these two things. Anyway, it's just really not an important point. Um, but that's what arises. Uh, that's the sort of consciousness that arises. There is consciousness that arises based on the eye and forms. It's not a very deep teaching uh, on the surface. But the meaning of the, th the three is contact. And I mean, it sounds kind of useless information, like, yeah, okay, I mean, that seems quite obvious. But again, this isn't about intellectual understanding. How, is that how you look at the world? It's not. We think about it intellectually, yeah, okay, that's how it works. That's not how we experience things. When you see, do you experience it like that? Okay, now there's 
light touching the eye and there's a consciousness arising that's very difficult that's part of what meditators experience right they're actually able to experience the arising of eye consciousness their minds become very sharp very strong and they're able to see clearly eye consciousness arising that's contact based on this contact of these three things there arises Vedana Vedana is translated as feeling it's the experiencing of the eye consciousness when you experience it, it, it you taste it you feel it, it can be well, with eye consciousness it's only a neutral feeling but with um, with mental stuff obviously it becomes liking it and disliking it becomes a happy feeling or a neutral feeling or an unhappy feeling if someone hits you it could be a painful feeling if someone gives you a massage it might be a pleasant feeling but based on experience there will arise a feeling what one feels that one perceives what one perceives that one thinks about mm -hmm. what one thinks about that one mentally proliferates one makes more of it than it actually is with what one has mentally proliferated as the source perceptions and notions Oh, here we are. Uh, one forms perceptions based on that proliferation. The forming of perceptions based on the mental proliferation consume the mind with respect to past, future, and present forms cognizable through the eye. It's still very dense, isn't it? I think it, it's it's getting a little clearer. Like he's actually spelling it out. Should be reminiscent of Paticca Samuppada if you've ever studied that. For those of you who have, dependent origination, because of seeing there arises contact. Because of contact there arises vedana, feeling. Because of feeling there arises, and then it gets actually more detailed than than or, an ordinary origination we think about what we what we see because we feel something about it um, we recognize it as something beautiful or something ugly something we like or dislike and so we start to extrapolate upon it it's not just seeing anymore it's now a good seeing these are simple, really simple teachings. I mean, it's not actually hard if you explain it properly. Um, but this is just intellectual. I mean, this is the point is that this is going on every moment. It's happening right now as I'm talking to you. There's all sorts of good and bad states arising, some wholesome, perhaps, but perhaps some unwholesome. Because of what you see and hear and smell and taste and feel and think, of course. Thinking is the most deadly. Because of all these things, there arises mental pro proliferation. There arises this consuming 
judgment that's so habitual we have all these habits everyone judges differently of course but it's just based on the habits they've cultivated what they've done what they've become and the same he says goes for hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking the ear the nose the tongue the body and the mind Then he says when there he says it a little bit differently, he says when I'm not gonna go into that. It's going uh, you can read it if you want. He just basically says that you can see, and this is what I was talking about, and with the meditation you can see the manifestation. So he's trying to explain to them this isn't just theoretical. It is possible to point out the manifestation of perception, the manifestation of thinking because of the one before it because of this sequence, because of how we react to things and then he says when there and then he, he gets on to something that's a little deeper when there, he says when there is the eye and seeing then there will arise, then you can see the reactions to things basically where there is no eye, no form, no eye consciousness is it, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of contact without contact it is impossible to point out the manifestation of feeling where there is no manifestation of feeling it is impossible to point out the manifestation of perception feeling is like experiencing really when there's no manifestation of perception, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of thinking. The whole chain breaks down. Without, without thinking, there is no proliferation, and there's no um, judging and reacting, and all these problems don't arise. Which may seem a little bit like overkill. I mean, I think we have this idea, perhaps, that the solution is to just live in the world and perceive things without reacting to them we hear about the Buddha the Buddha seems to have done it but the point is how he did it how the Buddha became free from his attachments to the world was actually through the experience of not seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or feeling and thinking which in turn came about by uh, this understanding that goes on in vipassana meditation so the sequence is the sequence is not understand things and then you will stop clinging to them the thing is the sequence is understand experiences to the point that you let go of them to the point that you um, detach from them and, and literally detach in the sense that they don't arise and it's actually that middle step of the non-arising of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting or feeling and thinking that gives you an experience without even really consciousness in that sense. I mean, there's no memory of it or anything. 
which means it's, it's a very interesting thing to call it an experience even there's uh, it's the cessation of sanya, the cessation of perception of anything um, and it's that step that uh, that leads one to see the world without clinging one, under, one understands, one has this innate understanding that, um, that it's the freedom from these things that, that it's the freedom from seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking that means nothing to, to cling to or that, that means no suffering basically So the, the freedom from suffering or, or freedom from, from defilement doesn't come about directly from understanding things. It comes about from uh, the cessation of them, the cessation of experience. I mean, quite simply because one is able to compare. The experience of Nibbana is it's peace that that is incomparable to anything else or nothing else is comparable to it it's true peace in a way that we don't even understand if you haven't experienced it and when you think of peace what do you think of peace? how would you describe peace? and I think of it as a happy feeling or a calm feeling and that's peace I think as a meditator we can see a little bit more clearly that none of these things are actually quite satisfying, you know. You might think of them as peaceful. But nothing like true, well they're nothing like Nibbana. There's not much really to be said about it. The... Um, so the, the, the whole point of this discourse is to change the way we look at our, our lives, our, our, ourselves from conceiving and really at the heart from seeing, seeing things as anything seeing let seeing become a person or food or music or smells or tastes let let them become anything because it lays out this sequence of how the problem arises and it teaches the meditator to look at the experience to observe the experience and to see how this is how it arises it arises based on um, based on the sequence based on the uh, pro this process of dependent origination and and the reason it's 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 able to continue um, is because we react to things we have this innate tendency that the Buddha talks about the Anusaya 
And, and that's an important point because you can't just turn them off, right? Again, we asked in the beginning, how do you, how do you free yourself of these things? Sometimes we don't want to be attached to things or angry or certainly worried or afraid or confused. We want to be clear in the mind. How do we go about that? And this is the point here of what Mahakachayana is getting into at the end, is that you can't just change that. It's like trying to lift yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't do it. You can't actually do it. So the way out of suffering, again to reiterate, is, is instead. And it's not really an instead, it's that when you see it clearly, you're not just going to change, you're going to completely let go and and cease to be this experience of cessation. And it's that experience that changes the way you look at things. It sort of uh, breaks a hole in the in the chain or cuts the chain, right? Because you have this chain of arising that is feeding our habits, changing them certainly, but it's always habits, good some, bad some. It's only that break, the cessation that shakes that all up and it provides a new experience, a new aspect of who to who we are that is this freedom from suffering, this, this Nibbanic experience of, of peace anyway, I don't think that's easy to understand that's why I wanted to try and smooth that out a little bit because it's it's a, it's disturbing I think as well to for people to hear about nibbana and and this idea of cessation and it's hard to understand why do I want that again right it's because you can't actually change who you are and through the meditation we we smooth things out we it's like we push aside, push things aside. So the potential is still there, but we're clearing out a space for ourselves. And when you clear out enough of a space in your mind, then the mind uh, is able to slip through. But it's that slipping through, it's that slipping out of samsara that truly changes you when you come, when you come back. There's no comparison now you have something to compare you have a comparison you have something to compare to the world what you thought was peace before is just an impermanent experience you understand that true peace is in freedom in freedom from samsara You realize that you realize that when I don't, when, I, when these when this chain doesn't arise, there will be no reactions. And then they go back to the Buddha, and the Buddha, um, and they relate to the Buddha all that Mahakachayana said. 
and he says Mahakachayana is wise I would have explained explained it exactly the same and Ananda asks him if he can call it the honey ball sutta or he says he says it's just like a honey ball a ball of honey something madupindikas some sweet some sort of sweet like chocolate maybe uh, and he says, what should we call it? And the Buddha says, we'll call it the honey ball. And so it's called to this day the Madhupindika Sutta. So there you go. That's the Dhamma for tonight. Hopefully that was somewhat interesting. Helpful. Helpful for our meditators. It's always good to be reminded and pointed in the right direction. So thank you all for tuning in.